You're listening to His Radio Talk, and this is Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Bean. Our number is 888-660-9535, and here is your host, Dr. Tony Bean. Good morning, everybody. Welcome in. It's a Tuesday edition of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Bean. Thank you for joining us. A lot of choices. You made this one. We're grateful. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as Director of the Office of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm currently the Interim Pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church in Simpsonville. If you don't have a place to worship on Sunday morning, we'd really be glad to have you come and join us enjoy the word being preached and good fellowship and worship and um, what, else, what else could you ask for in a church it'd be great great for you to come now don't leave your church if you've got a church you're actively involved in um, I'm not trying to pull you away all right uh, Austin's here today uh, Gary's going to be out the rest of the week so Austin's going to be coming in to run the board he's a, a board maven now one who is intelligent and inclined to be proficient with all things digital as he keeps his finger on a slider over there, making me nervous. So I'm the one that's you nervous. I don't no, know what you I'm should doing. Not. You do know what you're doing. Did you see the did you see the level of focus that it took? I couldn't even say hi to you this morning. Hi, by the way. I know. Hi. Okay. No, it's it's quite okay. Look, we're here, we're on the air. People are hearing us. Um, it appears that we're on Facebook Live. So um, that's that's a that's all good stuff going on here. Uh, so you want to talk about the Jesus Revolution. Ooh, there's so I thought n- there's there was... no news that's more important than that, is there? <laughs> well, um, actually, there isn't, because when we're talking about the Jesus Revolution, we're talking about revival and renewal. Uh, we're talking about something that was a remarkable move of God that took place in the late 60s and early 70s, and we long to see that happen again. There's some sparks of that happening around the country. And you know you have Asbury, you have uh, Samford is experiencing some revival, other places that this is beginning to break out, and it's our only hope. I mean, I, you know, I want people to understand something. Politics, and I, I say this a lot on the program, even though I'm, I'm very involved politically. I attended a fourth district Republican event last night. Heard our lieutenant governor um, speak, Pamela Evitt. She did a, a, a remarkable job. Um, and I, I saw a lot of my friends, and we expressed a lot of dismay over the fact that we can't protect life in South Carolina because we can't get the Senate and the House to come up with a compromise or to communicate with each other. We just keep on having abortions at 20 weeks, and that's very frustrating. And it's not because there aren't good people in the House and the Senate. There are. There are excellent people, um, people like John McCravey, um, in, over in the House, uh, people like Adam Morgan, uh, people like, I could go on, Mike Burns, uh, Bill Chumley. Uh, I mean, there's so many people, Travis Moore. I mean, there, there, there's so many people in the House that want to see abortion come to an end in South Carolina and to protect life beginning at conception. And there are a lot of good folks over in the Senate that would agree with that. Senator Tom Corbin, uh, Senator Dwight Loftus, Senator Josh Kimbrels. I mean, you you go through the list, and there are plenty of of good people. And I'll put Senator Shane Massey in that 
group as well. He's the uh, majority leader in the in the Senate, and he's pushed hard to try to get um, you know pro life bills through the Senate. And you know he's he's acknowledged the fact that the votes are not there to get a ban on abortion. That is to to ban abortion beginning at conception. Right now, the votes are not there in the Senate. We've got to to flip some people, uh, some senators. That is, make them change their minds, uh, present to them the facts, and be passionate but yet kind in the way that we communicate with them, and and try to get them to understand that life does begin at conception, and that's where it needs to be protected. But um, if, if we're putting our faith and our confidence and things like that, we're going to be perpetually disappointed because human beings are flawed, and we're always going to be dealing, even with the in the best of circumstances, we're dealing with something that the Bible calls the flesh, which is that that pulls us in a downward tra- trajectory away from uh, the, the presence of God and the influence of God in our lives. And the only thing that can counteract that is a move of God, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, something that our country is long overdue for and something that we're desperate for because when you look at the culture and you look at the country, we're at each other's throats. We're on edge constantly. Um, you know, you you see road rage incidents multiplying, even here in the upstate. And, and why is that? Because everybody's mad. Everybody's on edge. Everybody's concerned. We, we feel like that the, the glue that holds culture together and gives us some kind of common denominator uh, has somehow disappeared, and we're all just floundering out here. And I don't know of a political solution to that. Uh, so the, what was the exact timestamp on the Jesus Revolution in terms of just the movie? Because And there's a reason that I'm asking that. It's exactly relevant to what you're talking about right now. Well, the movie took place—I mean, the movie is about events that took place, and, and I, can't give you the, I can't give you the date and the year. Uh-huh. But it was in the late 60s when um, basically— uh, Hate Ashbury became, you know, it was the place where um, you had the summer of love and you had the place where hippies went and sort of decided this is the destination. Everybody was getting in a vehicle uh, trying to get to Hate Ashbury. And there are thousands and thousands who showed up. And that was the, the B-N is what it was called. And so there was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of, of, of fear began to uh, foment because there were people getting sick. Um, there, you, you know, you can't just sit around, have a multitude of sex partners, and do drugs and not have consequences attached to that. And don't forget about the music. So, well, because the music yeah. was a big part of, of, of the whole culture, well, wasn't it? Of the hippie yeah, culture. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think the music had anything to do with the, in, in terms of the, um, the, the, e- the parts that were hurting people were not the sitar music or the guitars okay okay i don't i I don't i don't equate things like that with the behavior that they were in i mean yeah is that right because if you i mean i'd love you just to describe what is a hippie because what is a hippie comes with the 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 music is a reflection of what they embraced it didn't cause them to embrace it okay i mean you don't the music grew out of the movement Uh uh-huh so it it was it was an expression of ideas that they already had, 
And there were people. And that's why Christians were so skeptical of that music. I mean, when 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 that music was brought into the church, then and that style and that you know, here you get these people that look like hippies. They got long hair. They got bell bottoms. They got paisleys. They got guitars. And well, look at these look at these ragged disciples. They walked around. They walked around barefoot. They mm. were fishermen. They were common people. They, they looked were, like the rest of the culture, the, though. The, these hippies, they were something oh, else. I don't think so. No, I don't think that the people. I don't think Peter, James, and John necessarily were mirrors of the culture around them. Hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that they they would have stood out. I mean. Even, I mean, Jesus stood out. John the Baptist stood out in his appearance and mm-hmm. the way that he lived. Mm-hmm. And I suspect— And, 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 and that, John the Baptist got kind of hard-checked for his weird appearance. You know, that was what stood out to people. That it was this dude, this weirdo out in the wilderness, you know, yelling and— Yeah, eating, but I don't think anybody rodents. would argue that John the Baptist's appearance nullified the effect of his message or the depth of his passion. I mean, we don't go around and go, oh, look at that guy. He's got long hair. He can't possibly believe in Jesus. Well, if you do, then something's wrong with you. There's not something wrong with them, okay? Because that's—so what? People grew their hair long and wore uh, clothes that were not the norm of the day. That's not what sets the standard for what a person is on the inside— I mean, it, it was a reflection of the confusion of the era, but as they began to embrace Christ, I mean, those things really didn't matter anymore. I mean, there, the people that it mattered to got up and walked out of church, and they missed what was likely the last genuine move of God that took place in this country. And that's the, and, and so interesting that you put it that way, because— we're experiencing maybe just the seminal moments of another move like that. You know, God is trying to work. You can't think that God's not trying to work in American culture today. He hasn't just brushed his hands off and walked away and said, you know what, they're too far gone for me. I think we need to be careful when we say God is trying to work. Uh, When God decides to work, he doesn't try, he does. It's sort of like Yoda says, you know, don't try, do, you know, whatever. So you see that at Asbury, you know, just seemingly out of nowhere, God shows up. You know, I mean, it was, it, yes, they've been praying for revival. Yes, there's been, you know, some groundwork that's been laid. But that groundwork has been laid elsewhere, too, and you don't see the same results. Well, so the, God the, just decided that. It, exactly. And, it, it, you know, he when he shows up, uh, this is an old thing that I used to say that makes some people uncomfortable. But when he shows up, he shows out. In other words, when God becomes... Uh, or or manifest himself in the power of the Holy Spirit to a group of people, those people's lives are changed. That's what happened in the Jesus movement. And so when when that happens, you have people, you know, the stodgy old people who are used to doing Christianity a certain way, look at these people and say, okay, so hang up your drugs, hang up your sex, your free, your, 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 your immoral culture, well, hang they up did. your music, hang up your hippie. No, 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 no. Forget, up, leave, cut, uh, cut your hair, the music shave is, off that beard, the music get a is job. Ridiculous. Music is mathematical formulas that have notes that move to a certain rhythm. I mean, Bill Gothard was wrong, okay? Uh-huh. I'm just going to uh-huh. say it. Uh-huh. Bill Gothard was that wrong back, about the— backmasking and all that stuff? Well, that not just, just the backmasking, but the fact that some rhythm patterns are inherently evil. Okay. That's just nonsense, mm-hmm. okay? It's, mm-hmm. it, it makes no sense. But you said that music expresses something about the culture from which it emerges. But I don't think that music caused these people to jump in a van and go to Haight-Ashbury. I think the mindset that they had 
began to be expressed through the music that they sang. And that music changed when their mindset changed. I mean, Love Song became one of the first contemporary Christian groups. They didn't even know to call themselves that. Okay. But they they emerged singing with their guitars and the, all of the instruments that were evil because they were being used for uh, to sing whatever. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, they were singing about Jesus. They were singing about God. They were singing what was happening inside of them began to be expressed with their instruments and their voices, which was a it, it was and a beautiful why, thing. And I wasn't there. We're gonna take a break. 888-660-9535. Yes we do. I, I we have to stop. Hold on, and just stop just a we, minute. Okay. We, so we have to get we, some music going here. What, yeah, that, well that thing that works sometimes. No. Sometimes that thing works and no, sometimes it doesn't. No, that's what I'm saying. Just and then Gary does something where he he does something. Yeah, I don't ask me. I just I just show up here and run my mouth. All He's right. the Forget the music. We're just going to a break. We're going here to a break. Right. Here we go. Part of my problem with doing this radio show is I have to live my life in between the times that I'm on the air, which means I have a lot of responsibilities yesterday. I was covered up with them. I intended to go back and try to fully review the book, The Jesus Revolution, uh, to be able to be a little bit more conversant about this. But um, unfortunately, um, you know, things like work and responsibilities around the house and so forth kind of get in the way of the way of some of that stuff. I did some of it um, last night. Um, so to, to understand what happened with the Jesus movement, I think you have to understand some of the history of the era. So you have World War II. You have the Depression. Everybody is... Um, in great want. Um, you have uh, 24% of the country is out of work. I mean, we can't imagine that kind of unemployment where people just become drifters because they have they can't find work. They can't. They're living in their cars if they have them, uh, or they're living on the street, or living in Hooverville, or living wherever they can pitch a tent and have food. So. Um, you know, the, 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 it was a it was a desperate era. Then you go through the horrors of World War II. I mean, World, World War II just stunned the senses at the amount of death and destruction that was possible because of the the war. Um, and the United States and its allies won the war, and we uncovered one of the most horrific events in human history: the Holocaust. The fact that an entire um, race, an entire group of people were, try, there was a, a, a group trying to exterminate them. I mean, that was, it shocked the senses. And then you had, at the end of World War II, of course, the dropping of two atomic bombs that ushered us into the atomic age. Well, as you had all these soldiers coming home from World War II, they came home on the GI Bill, and a lot of them went to college. And they were able to get good jobs, and you had the rise and explosion of the middle class, where people in the 1950s, you you had this picture of Ozzie and Harriet. I mean, you had a, a mom who stayed at home, who cooked, who looked after the family. You had a dad who went to work. They had a car. They had a TV, a black and white TV. They would come in at the end of the day. Um, have meatloaf dinners. I mean, you know, something other than meatloaf could be, but I mean, that that was kind of standard fare. And then they would all go sit around the TV, and everybody in the country 
was watching the same television programs. And television programs in the 1950s reinforced the idea of America as a good country. It reinforced the societal norms that pretty much kept everybody together. What happened when you sat down and watched TV? Did you watch, you know, episodes of murder and mayhem and sex? And No. You sat down and you watched uh, Lucy and Ricky Ricardo, and you can't figure out where little Ricky came from because Lucy and Ricky sleep in separate beds with a nightstand in between with a lamp on it. So, you you know, you've got to you got to kind of, you know, figure out, oh, oh where, where did where did this guy come from over here? Well, television wasn't going to be the one to tell you. And the television censors at that time believed that it wasn't their job to educate the country on the basics of sexuality. It, in, in fact, they felt like they had a responsibility to uphold a standard that was that was good. Decent. Yeah, decent. decent. You yeah. Use the word decent. Uh-huh. All right. At midnight, television went off. I mean, you didn't have 24-hour TV. And how did it go off? With the playing of the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, you had the rocket's red glare, bombs bursting in air. You've got jets flying over. And all these visuals that reminded everybody that we're we're all part of 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 the american culture we're and every night we got that reminder um when it was time to get the news we had three choices and it was for 30 minutes and it was you know we weren't bombarded if if you if things happened if they didn't break in with a news story you had to wait till the paper came out the next day and you didn't have digital pictures instantly being transmitted around the globe of world events so people were uh, had a very, you know, sheltered, if you want to put it that way, life. Now, the problem with the 1950s is that it was mostly white, and African Americans were referred to as Negroes, and they were uh, considered second-class citizens. And all of the nostalgia that we can go back and think about from the 1950s, uh, there were a lot of bad things that were part of our society that we just took for granted and treating African Americans in that in that way is one of those very bad things. So um, here's a here's a quote from the book The Jesus Revolution which I thought was pretty good. Television had a nationalizing influence creating or revealing realities that trumped local traditional ties to neighborhoods, churches, or ethnic groups. In this television has been called a great equalizer though it was very selective about who it equalized. In TV land with a few rare exceptions everyone was white. So that's, you know, that's part of the the issue that you have. Um, so in this in in the 1950s as we emerged there was a reaction to the the 1950s the standards as we got involved in the Vietnam war as um we you know the 60s were was one of the most turbulent decades um in the 21 in the 20th century because of all the things that happened. I mean, you think about it. It began with an assassination, and it wrapped up with two assassinations. And in between was the Vietnam War and all of the protest and all of the uh, the, the vitriol that was, uh, it, you know, heaped on America for involving uh, our soldiers in the Vietnam War. Um, that, that was a very unpopular war. And there were a lot of people, young people. You had draft card 
you know, people burning their draft cards, people fleeing to Canada. I mean, there was just a, a, a turbulence that was roiling up in the 60s, and that's where an entire generation uh, began to – They you had speakers that showed up that began to talk about, you know, turn on, tune out, and drop out, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and and so they, they began to respond to that, and it created kind of this countercultural revolution that became the hippie generation. And they began to experiment. You know, the 50s were very – some would use the word stodgy. I would use the word moral in the sense that it reinforced moral values about marriage, about limits to expressions of sexuality, about the, I mean, it, it, it emphasized the fact that drugs and, and alcohol were bad influences on society. So you, you, you had all that, and then there was a response to it. There was a reaction to it as people began to lose confidence in the systems, in the, um, I don't want to say the government because it was more than that. It was the collective understanding of what culture was all about got on trial and was judged to be wanting by an entire generation, and they responded by dropping out of the culture and creating their own. And it was based on free sexual expression. That is, and of course at the time it was primarily um, the multiple partners, the you know, guys and girls having sex outside of marriage, birth control hit the market in 19, the pill hit the market in 1961, which made possible a freer exp- expression of sexuality without pregnancy. Um, and then, you know, you had Kennedy assassinated in November of 1963, and that that was just. On, and on television, I mean, they were showing him shot. You know, the Zapruder film showed the president of the United States head explode when the third round from that rifle hit him. And then you had, you know, I'm, I'm watching TV uh, and you've got, a, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald, who's the suspect, is being escorted out of a jail in Houston and he gets shot on national television in real time by Jack Ruby, who just steps out of the crowd and shoots him in the gut. And so all of all of this is really beginning to affect the way that the countercultural generation began to think. Um, you can you can throw racism into that because you had a, you know the rise of, of Dr. Martin Luther King and the demand for civil rights, but he was a nonviolent. He was he was all about nonviolence, but moving toward getting equal rights for African Americans. So you got an unpopular war. You've got violence and the the death of a young president who was basically created by television. If you go back and look, you know. People who listened to the Nixon-Kennedy debate, which is the first nationally televised debate between two candidates for president, people who listened to it on the radio thought Kennedy won. I mean, uh, Nixon won. People who watched it on television thought Kennedy won hands down. And it was because of the optics. Nixon refused makeup. He had a five o'clock shadow. He was, he looked, he just looked out of place. And then you've got John F. Kennedy, who's young and dashing and charming and articulate, and he came across, he basically won the White House in a very close race uh, in that presidential debate. And so you have the contrast, and when he was assassinated, it just put a dagger through the heart 
of a lot of young people that felt like things were completely out of control and they had to change the system. And so that began the the drugs, the sex, the going to San Francisco, the summer of love, all of that. And that kind of culminated. And the music and the politics. Because, well, well, and the only reason that I keep coming back to that is because that Christians who interacted with the hippies held them very much at arm's length. And it wasn't only the sex and drugs that they were holding at arm's length, because as you've mentioned, when a hippie gets saved, the sex and the drugs falls off pretty quickly. But the music persisted, and that commune mentality and the politics persisted after, because they were a very—I mean, you think about the, the Jesus Revolution, the people who were getting saved in those churches— were still anti-war protesters. They were still against the Vietnam War. Not not in mass. Is that right? I mean, you don't that's that's a there there was a mixed bag uh-huh. of what people how people responded after the Jesus movement took hold to things like the Vietnam War. But to say that they were war protesters, look, they a good portion of the country that never experienced the hippie movement were war protesters. I mean, they didn't think that the Vietnam War was right. Uh, some some of them believed that before they got saved. Uh-huh. Some of them believed that after they got saved. Sure. Some of them changed their mind about it. That had nothing to do with, with the, the gospel to or the reality the of the— No, it the had— Well— It didn't? To, as far as the church is concerned, the church was dead wrong— if it treated people differently because they didn't agree about their their stand on the war. Huh. I mean, the stand on the war is not going to determine an eternity for these people. It's not, you know, the change that comes when Christ changes a person's life. If, if we are so uh, limited in our sight that we can't celebrate that apart from political differences, then we're the ones that are wrong. I mean, I, we're, look, I believe, I I know that this is a crazy thing to say in our culture today, but I believe, I know Democrats who are following Jesus. They're, they're saved people. They've accepted Christ. They've acknowledged their sin, and they have the Holy Spirit living in them, and they disagree with me about things political. Now, most of them are pro-life because that's kind of a foundational um belief when it comes to Christianity, but on a lot of other things, we would probably disagree. And I, But that's not going to cause me to go, well, I'm going to judge that they're not a Christian because they disagree with me on political issues so if it or wasn't how to the accomplish politics, things. And I know we got to go to a break. Um, if it wasn't the politics, then was it the music? Because the music resulted in a 30- or 40-year war in the church. Yeah, but the music that came out of the Jesus movement was a beautiful thing. It was a good thing. It was not it, – it, it's not the – the Beatles didn't come out of the Jesus movement. Huh. The Beatles preceded the Jesus movement. So did the Rolling Stones. So did rock and roll music. So did Elvis Presley. All the Jesus movement did was take the style – And baptize that, it. And, 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 well, if it's more than that. It's is not it, just is it really? yes, because they created music out of a heart that had been changed that was beautiful. I mean, look at look at Godspell. I mean, who can who can sit at the beginning of that musical and hear John the Baptist coming coming in singing that beautiful "Prepare ye the name the way the the, um, the name of the the name of the Lord." I think it's is the way that it's it's stated. Um, 
it was a, it was a beautiful expression musically of what had happened in people's lives. I mean, you look at you look at contemporary Christian music. There's so many good things there. I mean, I'm not going to tell you every contemporary Christian song uh, moves me to tears, but a lot of them are. I mean, I can't hear the first three notes of "Do It Again" by Elevation Worship without getting emotional. I mean, walking around these walls, I thought by now they'd fall but you have never failed me yet? What an expression of what God has done in an individual life. But we don't need that because there's already a hymn that says that better. No, I'm just teasing you. I'm just teasing. We're having a long discussion here about the Jesus Revolution, about the movie and the book. And let let me just tell you, since I didn't really say much about it yesterday in anticipation of this, you need to go see the movie. The movie's a great movie. It's extremely well done. Um, I was telling my daughter last night, I said, you know, a lot of times when I go to see, quote, Christian movies, there's a moment where I'm sitting there thinking not about the characters on the screen, but about the fact that the people that are playing them uh, probably came out of somebody's church. And they're just, I mean, you know, they're, they learn the lines. But the moment you begin to think about the the person playing the character and you're you're not paying attention to the character they're playing, then that's an indication that the movie's lost you somewhere along the way, and that happens in it seems to me in Christian movies. This movie, um, there was I mean I was caught up in the characters from the beginning to end, and there are three major characters in the movie. There's Greg Laurie, who meets his wife Kathy, um, and Kathy's sister almost dies. Uh, from an overdose, and uh, in that moment, Kathy decides that the the hippie movement is, movement is going to be over for her, and she begins to go to these Bible studies that Chuck Smith began, um, and, along with Lonnie Frisbee, um, that they sort of began these um, studies of, of God's Word that Chuck had used before. Chuck was a four-square gospel pastor in Corona, California, and he had small churches that would um, struggle, and sometimes they would grow. But in the mid-60s, he left Corona and went to Costa Mesa, and he went to Calvary Chapel. And one day, as Calvary Chapel had grown some because of his preaching and his passion, um, he looked out and realized that he knew the names of everybody in the congregation and that they all knew each other. And he realized this was this was never going to be a church that was going to grow and reach lost people unless they got outside that that rubric. So he and, and um, uh, his wife began to have uh, Bible studies in their home extemporaneously from the church, and those Bible studies are what began to grow and explode. And then the people that came to the Bible studies started coming to the church, Calvary Chapel. And at first, they were very much like the people who were at Calvary Chapel. But later on, um, with when Chuck Smith met Lonnie Frisbee, and he began to have a heart for the, the people that were the beginnings of the Jesus movement, these young people that were confused and uh, you know, all these had had all these experiences and had been on drugs and had tried sex and tried to fill their lives with everything other than the gospel. When he began to reach them and they came to his church, that's when some of the tension began to start. And between. Lonnie says in there, he says, don't you get it? The hippie movement, that's a search for God. 
Yeah. Like that's well, that it whole is. thing is a search for God. Well, sure. Don't you realize that? We're we're in a search for God today. I mean, you've got in the sexual identity, um, you know, people turning inward and saying, you know, my individual choices are what matters. I'll define myself outside of the community, and and then I become what I say that I am, regardless of what the community says. All of that is a, a desire to know the infinite and to know God. And that's what was happening with all these people that went to hate Ashbury. They were looking for something. They, what they saw in the culture, convinced them that it wasn't real. They were disillusioned. Yes. Well, and and who wouldn't be? I mean, in the 1960s, are you kidding? Uh, like I said, it 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 started with an assassination and ended with an assassination. Uh, you know, and and really, as you, as you move toward the end of the 60s. When the drugs began to wear off, and that that b- began to be, you know, not the answer. Uh, you had the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Three months later, uh, approximately three and a half, four months later, you had Bobby Kennedy assassinated. You had the riots at the 1968 Democrat Convention. Uh, you you just it just seemed the fabric of everything was coming apart. And then in 1969, you had Woodstock, and after Woodstock. Is when there began a there began a movement or the shift toward it. It started before Woodstock, but probably around 1968. But by 1971, um, we were in the in a full fledged movement of people coming to Christ and Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee um, and eventually Greg Laurie after he came to Christ were baptizing people at Pirates Cove in California just thousands of people, and the media began to take notice. And in Indiana, and then, meanwhile, Asbury's experiencing an awakening in 1970. Yeah. So tie those two things. I mean, you know, obviously this That's wasn't right. just a Greg Glory thing. It wasn't just a harvest. It wasn't Bible Chapel of California. You no, know, it spread all over the country. It was all over. Right. And then, and, and just like in everything, I mean, people are, you know, there are people who are susceptible to the temptations and the destruction that comes even as they're being used by God. I mean, Lonnie Frisbee ended up uh, splitting with Chuck Smith over um, sort of an understanding of uh, charismatic expressions in the worship service. Okay. And uh, Chuck and Lonnie Frisbee moved to Florida with his wife. Eventually, his his marriage fell apart, and he got involved in the uh, homosexual lifestyle. Um, He contracted AIDS and died in 1993, at the age of 40-something. I think he was 43 when he died in wow. 1993. But he came back to Christ. I mean, he came back. He he went through that uh, bad time, and th- but then before he died, he came back to w- the to Jesus who had changed him. But, I mean, it, it put a, in, in a lot of people's mind, it put a taint on the Jesus movement. And how could it, it not? You know, well, but but do you judge the do you judge the one by the other? You don't. Let me give you another example, and I will because because again, there are so many yeah, touch but, points but, around. But, this. but let me let me just say that okay. every and we're going to take another break. All right. Every single person who Christ changed has nothing to do with the fact that Lonnie Frisbee had a moral failure. I mean that that would be like saying everybody that got saved under 
uh, anybody's ministry that had a moral failure is now subject to question. For sure. No, the work of God is independent in every person's life. It's not connected to the messenger. I mean, it's if God can work and move even if the messenger is not a very good messenger. Uh, and even if the messenger has moral failings, God can still work and move in people's lives. And if when he does, if that's a genuine conversion, it remains genuine regardless of the path that the messenger takes. Uh, definitely. So anyway. But I guess right. the question that I have when I, when I think about the Jesus Revolution is why did Christians resist it so much? Why did the traditional steeple, yeah. pew, altar, you know, because, why did those people because resist they didn't, it the so much? Because the hippies, the, the people that were getting saved— were outcast in their mind. And to me, that's all the more reason. I mean, when you miss the fact that these are broken, confused young people who are trying to find the right path, and when they begin to find it, you reject them because they're broken, confused young people, that that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Um, it'd be a lot easier to take if they were if they came up to you and said, "You know what? I've been a broken, confused young person. You were right. I was wrong. Let me do things your way now." Yeah, but that's but that, not, that's not how it that, happened. That's not how it, and well, and it's not how it happens. Um, all right, so let's let's go forward a little bit. With we talked about Lonnie Frisbee, Chuck Smith, and the Calvary Chapel movement. Lonnie Frisbee eventually helped to found the Vineyard movement. And it became a worldwide movement. And same thing with Calvary Chapel with Chuck Smith. And um, then in, the, in 1981, uh, Chuck, Chuck Smith decided that the end of the world was coming in 1981, that Jesus was coming back. And so obviously we're, we're still here. So that, that lessened his credibility, huh. which is unfortunate because a lot of his preaching— um, up until the moment where it, you know he realized that they weren't reaching large groups of unchurched people, that they were just kind of talking to themselves, he preached what he described as trendy sermons uh, on topics that you know he tried to be clever, and 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 that was somewhat appealing to the people that were coming at the time, but when he kind of had this awakening. He went back. He went and started preaching large sections of the Bible. I mean, he preached through the Book of Romans. He preached through the Book of John. He preached, and so it was a word-driven response that people were seeing in a lot of these young people. Uh, it was God's word that I mean, they would hold up the Bible. You know, you're talking in the movie. You, they would hold up the Bible and say, you know, this is the Word of God. Chuck Smith, before he would preach, or Lonnie Frisbee, before they would, they would hold up the Bible and say, this is the Word of God. And all the people would hold their Bibles up, you know, and, and agree. So it became a very word-driven movement. Um, you you would ask me while we were in the break to talk about the three or to talk about my favorite move, m- moment in the movie, and I'd have to go with three. I think um, one of them is Greg Laurie's conversion. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is it, – it's a it's a very dramatic thing, and Lonnie Frisbee shares the gospel with him, and he prays to receive Jesus standing in the water, uh, getting ready, ready to right be baptized. Yeah, like, like, I don't know if I'm ready. Well, are you ready are you, right now? It's, it's yeah. a it's – a, it, it's just really good. Yeah. Um, there's another moment in the church when 
the you know um, Chuck Smith, who's played by Kelsey Grammer in the movie, says to his congregation, "There's the door, and we want people who are seeking Jesus to come through that door." But the door swings both ways, mm. and if you don't, if you can't accept what God is doing here among us, and then that door is open for you to leave. Mm. And several people got up and walked out the door. And one guy got up. He was obviously an older guy, and it looked like he was going to get in the parade of those that were going out the door. And instead, he stepped across the aisle, got in the middle of the pew with the hippies that were there, mm. and put his arm around them and looked at Chuck Smith and said, "Let's okay, Pastor, let's go." You know, it's so fascinating. So, I wanted to talk to Pastor Jim Russell today about that because he described when I was on when I interviewed him here on the show. He described an almost identical situation where he started losing people, and it was the people who weren't comfortable with the changes that were coming to right. the church. I wanted right. him to talk about that because it well, was just that moment. Well, you you know, here's the thing about change. Mm -hmm. You know, and and it's the catch twenty two of change that any pastor faces. Um, if you're going to go in a church and make genuine change, you you have to hope that the change draws an, the, the enough people in the door as it does drive people out through the door. It's going to be a net because gain. Because if, if it doesn't, well, it doesn't even have to be a net gain in the beginning, mm -hmm. It's but it, but it has to be at least equal uh, because you can't, you can't lose 40 people and, and, and then, you know, not have a commensurate amount of people that are coming in because they embrace the change. I mean, if, if, if everybody had walked out, you know, Chuck Smith would have been in trouble hmm. because, you, you know, they, they, they were the elders, so to speak, in the church were right. They were the tithers. They were the ones that were keeping the church financially afloat. It wasn't these uh, hippies that were coming to Jesus who didn't really have anything. Right. So, right. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, so you, you can't build a church on hippies is what you're saying. <laughs> well, no, you can, because I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, b I believe God will provide, but the, w the manner in which he provides uh, often is in the exchange yeah. between those who say no to the change and those who embrace it. So anyway, the third scene in the movie, and this was Denise's favorite, is there's a point where, you know, Chuck Smith's being raked over the coals in his office by some of the, the deacons, the leaders, whatever you want to characterize them. And they're telling him that, you know, these, these, these kids are dirty. They're coming in in their bare feet and they're ruining the shag carpet. So the next scene is this long line of people to get into the church. And Chuck Smith is down there on his knees washing everybody's feet. Mm. Oh. Mm. <laughs> I can't even talk about that mm. without it. Because, you know, that was such a beautiful thing because that, in essence, is the gospel. I mean, we, we, we demonstrate a willingness to wash each other's feet, and we understand the value of, of, of people not because of the way they dress or how they look or whether they wear shoes or whether they have clean feet or dirty feet. We value a person because they're created in the image of God. Christ died for them. And they're, when, when they come to know Jesus, then their lives are changed and it, for eternity. I mean, look at Greg Laurie. Greg Laurie was a kid. I mean, his, and his life was a, 
a dumpster fire. Uh, his mother was married and divorced seven times. Mm. Uh, his dad, he didn't even know his dad, who his dad was until he was 40 years old, mm. his actual biological father. Um, and they moved around all the time. They were, I mean, his, his life was just a no foundation. All this picture from the 50s that we described about the mom and the dad, and the dad comes home, and they have meatloaf, and then they watch television. and get, He had no concept of any of that because it wasn't his experience. Um, and when he came to Jesus, he just started preaching. And it turns out that God gifted him as a communicator, worked through him by the Holy Spirit's power, and now he's got the largest church in California, one of the largest churches in the world, um, and he does these harvest crusades where people come to Jesus in great numbers because he was mentored by Billy Graham. You know, that's another thing. Billy Graham embraced the Jesus movement, and, you know, he— um, they had this huge um, event with what, 60,000, yeah, the, yep, 50, 60,000 people, uh, and Billy Graham preached. I mean, and it was— that was in 72, is that 72, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the—I mean, it was a, it, it was a beautiful thing. Um, and so much came out of that. Um, but the, the, the church rejected the music. They didn't like— uh, the the politics of of the people, um, they I mean there were other issues the way that they looked the way that they dressed. So through the it was lens non-conventional of, through the lens of history, who was right? Oh, through the lens of history, I think the people who embraced the Jesus movement as a genuine move of God were definitely right. And so, what what relationship does that have to how we think about Asbury now and what God's trying to do now? Well, we can look at it and we can be like, I don't know, I don't. No, know. no, no, no. Uh, uh-uh. I don't look at that at all and say I don't know. I look at that and go, God is doing something here. I want. I, in fact, if if I could just leave <laughs> everything and go, I mean, I want to walk into that environment. I want. I want to go into a place where the presence of God is at work in an unusual way. Um, I want to be with people whose lives are being impacted and changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, but I want to see it happen here. I don't want to go get it. I want God to do it here. You can't go get it and bring it back. You, it has to be God doing it here. All right, we got news coming up next, and we'll be back. 